Welcome to the latest installment of Bureau 42's Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcasts. Today, Alexander Case and I are back. We are discussing aliens as part of our Halloween coverage. So, welcome back, Alex. Glad to be back. Okay, so this week we're actually discussing the film that comes in at number 56 on the IMDb's Top 250 Films of All Time ranking. And, I don't know, these may be fighting words to some. I think it's a good movie. I don't think it's that good. I think it's alright. It's not my favorite science fiction film of all time. I enjoy it a lot. Um, I definitely put it in, like, my personal, like, top 15, top 20. But it's not quite in my top 10. Um. Yeah, if we if we look at how it did in the tournament, it was respectable. I mean, the first round one, it just basically made the cut to continue. Uh, then in round two, it lost to Quiet Earth. Or sorry, it won to Quiet Earth. Round three, it won against District 9. Round four, it won against The Incredibles in what was a statistical upset. And then it was the next round where it fell to Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan which is the same round that the original Alien came down in. So it's got a respectable showing. Now, last time we started talking about Alien because it is essentially a horror movie. Aliens pulls it more into the action genre. There are still horror elements, uh, but one of the reasons I wouldn't have put it at number 56 in the top 250 films of all time is because it displays a lot of the trappings that I'm not a fan of with James Cameron. He can put a great movie together, but he seems to do it by taking pieces of other great movies and gluing them together rather than coming up with ideas of his own. So at least that's my opinion. That that seems that's, that seems fair. I, I see that. Um. There's some definitely bits from this movie which are definitely clearly borrowed, at, at least, from other movies, and some not in the science fiction genre. That's true. Or even others. I mean, you want some strong connections to the original movie when you're making a sequel. And this is a greater departure than a lot of sequels because it is one that really is trying to change the genre. Right? It is more action than horror, even though there are elements of both here. But it would have been nice if we had, I think, even a more varied structure in the story. Uh, to me, both films start off with sort of day-in-the-life kind of stories. In the original, it's with, you know, these guys coming back from a mining mission. Then they get the message to go check something out. They find something unexpected that starts to slaughter them. Ripley gets out with her... In that case, it was Jonesy the cat, but there's something she sort of adopted to take care of, and they are essentially the last two survivors. Just when they think they get out and blow the Nostromo to smithereens, they find out, oh no, the threat has followed them, and they need to take care of it, blowing it out an airlock. Then we have aliens, where they wake up Ripley, she tries to do the day in the life and go back to a normal life after this experience. It's hard to do because she's been lost so long. 
this is when they introduce a daughter just to kill her and give her some attachment. And it's like also the daughter is only really, really prominent in the director's cut as well, in terms of that that subplot. Yeah, it's, I watched the original cut, and there is there's some, but it's basically just that one conversation is all that's in the theatrical cut, just enough, basically, to motivate her to give Newt protection, as though you would need to be motivated to give Newt protection down the road. Yeah, there's a it's just a sorry. yeah, it's just that little extra nudge. Yeah, there's a longer conversation in the director's cut um, on the uh, station between Paul Reiser's character. Carter Burke and Ripley, where she gets the full sort of bio on her daughter and what happened to her in the intervening, uh, like, 80 years, 90 years? Um, uh, yeah, she was out for 53 years. 53 years. So for the, so what happened to her daughter in the intervening 53 years and her deciding not to get in touch with what would now be her granddaughter and stay up on the station at that yeah. point. Yeah. This, yeah, so again, there's a little more background, but again, for all intents and purposes, I see why that scene was cut from the actual cut, because just, she had a daughter, her daughter's passed away, right, that's enough so that the audience feels a bit of her pain. Seeing her consciously choose to leave the grandchildren behind might alienate her from some parts of the audience. So I could see why they would leave that out. Uh, after that, they do talk her into going on the mission, mostly because, one thing I will give them credit for, She's gone through a horrifying experience, and it left psychological scars. That's not something we see in a lot of horror movie sequels. We see it here. She is very, very much disturbed by her experiences. So she agrees to go back to this planet where a colony has been set up, and they've lost contact with it. So again, they get into a situation, not really sure what it is. They find out, start getting slaughtered find out that, again, there's sort of a mole or, you know, wolf in the fold within their tight group at pretty much the same point in the story in terms of the three-act structure. Get out, blow the thing to smithereens, find out, oh, the main threat is still alive. They have to beat it by tricking it and blowing it down an airlock. Now, um, again, I watched both the director's cut and the theatrical cut. One other interesting little bit here that wasn't in the uh, theatrical cut is we see a bit more of status quo daily life on Acheron, which is now the name of the planet, and the colony of Hadley's Hope before things went bad and the aliens showed up. We see um, we, we see the, the colony administrators basically having a conversation. It's a lot like the conversations among the crew of the Nostromo. It's very very blue collar, very very laid back. Sort of, um, they talk about how they received a signal to check out a certain um, from the company to check out a certain grid grid square. Um, they didn't know why, and the uh, didn't know why, and they went to ask all the other. The guy didn't ask because whenever the comp because the quote is in the effect of whenever you ask the company, the the answer is always don't ask. Um, and like two people in this conversation saying that last bit in unison. It's, it's very, very people who are kind of stuck in the cogs of the machine and, and rankling with it and that sort of thing. We also see Newt's family, um, before they get taken out. We see the, um, 
their uh, little prospector vehicle go and investigate the um, the ship from the first from the first movie. We don't see them go in. When we see them go inside, we don't see what happens inside. We just see Newt and her brother wait in the vehicle. And then when we next see the mother and Newt's father, um, Dad's Dad's got a uh, face hugger on him, and Mom's in a panic. And those are two scenes where I think it'd be nice to have those there. Um, at the, um, it does set up Newt a little earlier and give a status quo of what she was like before she basically became... Um, before she got PTSD at the age of seven, basically. Uh, and also knowing kind of what the colony was originally like and for the daily life and that sort of thing, so that when the Marines come in afterward and everything's gone to hell, we have that contrast. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that the contrast is nice, although... I can also see if the studio's investing this much money, they want to get to the action as soon as possible, and it does take a while to get there. Uh, I mean, not a tremendous amount, but there's actually very little action for the first act in this action movie. That's pretty much all set up, and nicely justifying why Ripley does go back to this planet. Well, again, I would want to see what the script like, looked like before James Cameron did his rewrite. Uh, if we look at the actual credits. There's some union rules that tell you how it was set up. So with the writing credits, they've got Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Chusett just as characters, because they wrote the original, but they were not directly involved in the sequel. Uh, the story credits are to James Cameron, David Giller, and Walter Hill. But Giller and Hill, their names are separated by an ampersand, and James Cameron has the and. Uh, uh, at the time this came out, in 86, what that means is that Giller and Walter Hill collaborated on a version, and then James Cameron rewrote their script. Um, I actually went and I uh, watched the uh, documentary on the uh, Alien Quadrilogy set on this. Yeah. Um, basically what it was is, Hiller, is Giller and Hill, who are also the producers and who um, produced the movies um, pretty, much, pretty much the whole series, um, sort of put together basic notes on what they wanted the, the uh, movie to be. They wanted to go back to the planet, and they wanted kind of a larger group of people. They did, And they wanted to bring uh, Ripley back. Um, but they were kind of put a script together where Ripley was not essential to the movie and could be cut out entirely if, Sigourney, if they weren't able to get Sigourney Weaver. Um, they then brought in... James Cameron, who at that time he'd been, he'd only d directed one movie, which was Piranha 2 The Spawning, and was working on finishing up The Terminator. Um, and basically he got the alien, aliens gig for writing the movie at about the same time that he also got the gig to write the script for Rambo First Blood Part 2. Um, and at this time, actually, um, Cameron had previously worked on a alien kind of ripoff for, um, Roger Corman, the, uh, movie Planet of Terror, where, 
Cameron was production designer on it. Um, and he'd kind of been wanting to make his own alien movie for quite some time. And so you can kind of tell that like, if you look at these scripts for First Blood Part Two and um, Aliens, you can, re- you can clearly tell which one got the most attention to it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you can definitely tell that that Aliens got a lot more care and thought to it. And probably not just because Rambo's a really simple movie to write narratively, but also that James Cameron really wanted to make this movie. And which is also why Cameron pushed for the um, to direct it and got the directing job. Which Cameron kind of considers this to be his second movie he ever directed, as opposed to Terminator, and I can kind of see that because Terminator and um, and Aliens are much more big and more involved movies from a direction standpoint as opposed to Piranha 2, The Spawning, which is a Roger Corman joint. Yeah, that's... Corman is known for making a lot of movies, not for making great movies. And that's something that comes through. But he's given a lot of people their first go and open a lot of doors for them including Jack Nicholson as well as James Cameron and Leonardo DiCaprio but yeah I guess as you were saying there there would have been some concern about whether they can get Sigourney Weaver back which is probably why they structured the script to work with or without her because when she did the first one she was a relative unknown when she was doing Aliens this was after Ghostbusters, and she was a name before Ghostbusters. So this is the point where she she could start demanding paychecks. And this role is actually where she got her first Oscar nomination. It was for this role in Aliens. Yeah, and that in of itself was really impressive, considering that that it's still relatively rare for science fiction films or horror films to get some of the big nominations in terms of Best actor, best screenplay, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, anything outside of the technical, visual, sound, editing, those kind of awards. It's, yeah, it is a pretty significant feat to get the nomination. It's actually her first of three nominations, if memory serves. Yeah. Yep, she actually was also nominated twice in 1989 for Working Girl and for Gorillas in the Mist as both Best Actress and Best Supporting. Mm-hmm. And just rounding up the cast, we have Carrie Henn as Newt, who is the little girl who survived. Uh, but from what I understand, Carrie Henn chose not to continue with acting and grew up to become a kindergarten teacher in Texas. There's James Cameron, standby Michael Bain as Corporal Dwayne Hicks. As you've already mentioned, Paul Reich is in here as Carter Burke in one of his few dramatic roles. Lance Henriksen is here as Bishop. Another camera standby of Bill Paxton is here as Private Hudson. Jeanette Goldstein as Private Vasquez. William Hope is Lieutenant Gorman. Al Matthews is Sergeant Apone. Mark Ralston is Drake, Rico Ross is Frost, Colette Hiller is Pharaoh, Daniel Cash is Spunkmeyer, uh, Cynthia Scott is Corporal Dietrich. There are a few others. Yeah. It, for the most part, the core cast are Gorman, Vasquez, Hudson, Bishop, Burke, 
Hicks, Newt, and Ripley. Uh, the rest are in there to make it look like a sizable marine troop and to provide cannon fodder in the first encounter. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of interesting with this um, movie in terms of the influences this also had on the military science fiction genre as a whole in terms of, like, as a, this, is a recent, this is a sort of relatively recent example. Well, not relatively recent, it's the 90s. Um, in the game StarCraft, there's your dropship unit in the game, and every line that unit has basically comes from the uh, um, pilot of the dropship, the uh, female pilot of the dropship, whose name just fell out of my head. Yeah. Um, Things like 5x5. Five five. Yeah. Um, and, for example, in the Halo game, in the first three Halo games, um, Sergeant Franklin, I think his name is the character, basically is Sergeant, he's basically Sergeant Apone. I'm surprised they didn't get Al Matthews to come to do the voice acting for the character because he acts almost exactly like Apone in every every respect. Yeah, it's James Cameron may make his films with a cookie cutter, but he really knows how to use it. Yeah, these it it is an effectively assembled film. Indeed, so the underlying structure is pretty reminiscent of the first one. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's also critical to use cookie cutters that are outside the science fiction genre. Um, the Marines here basically they took the cookie, the cookie cutter for there is basically Full Metal Jacket uh, for the Marines. Though technically that kind of makes them they're kind of closer to Vietnam era draftees, regular army draftees than Marines per se. But he's definitely looking for the attitude of of regular army in Vietnam towards the end of their tour kind of thing. Yeah. I think even at one point Hudson says that he was just about to finish up his tour of duty and be done with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is another I know, Bill Paxton's role in this is another side of James Cameron that comes out. He doesn't seem to care for nerds too much. And that's essentially Bill Paxton's role in the squad is he's the computer expert. So he's the one that gets into digital locks, the one that gets into the, the company database. That's all his bag, and he's the one that I find is it's hardest to buy his character as a Marine. Nothing to do with Bill Paxton's portrayal. He's playing the character as scripted. But this is not a character that can cope with stressful situations like the ones Marines would be selected and trained for. Yeah. Yeah. Bill Paxton tends to get put in the cast for what I like to refer to as punchable characters, as far as characters who at some point are the audience wants a character to punch them in the face, and then the character gets punched in the face, and the audience is satisfied with that in some fashion or another. He played in the Walter Hill film Streets of Fire. He plays the bartender and the main character, and he torques off the main character and gets punched in the face. Uh, he plays a really obnoxious cop in Predator 2, uh, which we'll talk about later. Um, he, Plus True Lies. Uh, true Lies. Um he, and he's in the Terminator, where he plays one of the street punks who decides to threaten the Terminator after he's just arrived and does not live to regret his mistake. No. No, and we see a lot of messages. So Cameron does try to work in social commentary, uh, not always in a subtle fashion. These, as you're saying, it is very much reminiscent of Vietnam. 
and how these guys are kind of thrown together right down to, you know, the equipment, the way that the, the vehicles are painted, the trade dress, the way their attitudes are. Um, and Lieutenant Gorman, who's the only guy who seems to be having a tougher time than Hudson when it comes to coping with this, and yet he's the one in charge. So it's inexperienced officers leading men to their deaths, which is one of the major criticisms of Vietnam. And that's something that James Cameron was deliberately putting in here, is putting in those parallels. So I, I will give him credit for that. He's not out there to make just empty films for the most part. He's done it a couple of times, but that's really the goal. He is trying to get something else in there. He just doesn't seem to quite grasp the subtlety needed to do it nicely. Yeah. This film was also much more overtly anti-corporate than Alien, Alien was. There's a little bit in there with, I mean, particularly once um, Ash is revealed as the robot and he gives his exposition for why he was sent as the mole on the uh, mission. Um, we, it, It's still not quite as blatant as... Um, as alien as aliens, because in Alien, the corporation was basically willing to was willing to write off a crew of six to get the alien back, but here they are willing to write off a space colony with um with, with a planetary colony with over a hundred people, including women and including families, um, just to get an alien. Yeah, and Aliens is also the one that makes it seem like the company. I mean, in the first Alien, they're talking about the company, the company, but it's one work crew. So it could just be that, yeah, that's who they happen to work for. And it, Aliens is the one where it starts to give the impression that the company is now the only company, and it's a massive conglomerate that runs everything. Which is also kind of interesting, this because... Aliens is also, to my knowledge, the only movie in the series to have product placement. Um, specifically, Ripley wears Reeboks. Um, we, get, we get several quick shots, just long enough that you can notice it, where you can see her uh, Reebok shoes, and I think it's actually even a custom pair of shoes. I almost wonder why, while we've gotten the Back to the Future Nikes, Back to the Future 2 Nikes, Reebok hasn't gone and say, hey, we could do this too, and put out the Reebok Ripley's. Just saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those, those shoes take a beating in this movie. Yeah. That they do. But, I mean, as you said, this, this film, it feels like it's got a lot more care and attention than the Rambo sequel did. To me, it still feels like it got less care and attention than the original Alien. Especially if you look at that first assault. I mean, yeah, they, they recognize the fact that these aliens have molecular acid for blood. You know, where, what, 20 or 30 milliliters in the first movie went through how many decks of the craft? Here, it, it burns on contact with organics. We don't know exactly what it's made of, so maybe it is, you know, less damaging to organics than inorganics, um, which would help explain how the aliens can survive with so much of it in them. But then we have issues like the rover running over aliens and getting splashed with this stuff to no effect. It, the toxicity of the blood is highly variable in the course of this film. There's times where it's, you know, incredibly fatal. 
There's times where it just causes skin burns, even though you're coated with it. It's just, it really feels like the blood is as dangerous as the writers want it to be in that particular second. Indeed. And also there's some other narrative bits, which after when I watched it basically twice in a row, kind of stick out with me uh, in terms of for not working well. Like, for example, the ship, the Sulaco. Near as you can tell this movie, it is crewed solely by the Marines and the dropship pilots. Um, which is particularly odd because there are two dropships on there. Um, and there are clearly weapons on the ship that can be fired from or that can hit a target from orbit. So, because the line nuked aside from orbit is the only way to be sure comes in. So, why aren't there, isn't there a crew on the Sulaco handling things like, for example, possibly being able to send down the other dropship? Um, able to get a signal back, various other things. Um, they're just generally running the ship and keeping things fixed and that sort of thing. Uh, because that would be inconvenient. Yeah. yeah. At least from the writer's standpoint. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it is assembled. It's somewhat like Star Trek Into Darkness, which has just came out in the sense that there are definite plot holes there. But they managed to keep the pacing and the tension and the actual filmmaking tight enough that you don't have a chance to think about and notice most of them the first time through. It's only thinking about it after the fact or rewatching it that a lot of these issues become clear. And, you know, that's what we're seeing through a lot of this film, even the parallels between the two. I'm not sure how obvious they were. I mean, certainly the first time I saw Alien, I didn't notice the parallel story structure with Aliens, which I had seen earlier, partly because they were a couple of years apart. It wasn't until they started releasing it as a set, and I watched them back to back to back, that the connections and similarities really became clear to me. Yeah. Um... Oh, one other thing I do want to mention as far as deleted scenes as well, I almost forgot to mention this, is the one other scene which probably sticks out, which I kind of feel the film is lacking in its absence, um, is we get a scene um, with several scenes involving some um, automated sentry guns, which also which also survived the um, the survived when the uh, crash of the dropship and the wreck of the APC. Um, and we actually, and actually, in the movie as cut, you can see the boxes for the um, sentry guns, but Hick, but uh, Hicks doesn't talk about it. In um, the he talks about them and they set them up to take out the aliens. They're basically just if you play, if you play Team Fortress Two, they're exactly like the sentry guns of Team Fortress Two, the basic level ones. They sit there, they track back and forth, and they shoot anything that gets in front of them. I uh, get a good sense of tension here, where the aliens basically just bums, give them the buns rush, and they get to the first wave of the sentry guns, um, and then finally get stopped at the second wave, barely. Uh, and it also kind of sets up, or the way they're stopped, it sets up the idea that the aliens are um, maybe a little more contemplative, and that second wave, they rather than just simply being stopped by them all, but by the 
um, instead of your gun shooting all this wave, they choose to fall back and take a different approach. Um, mm-hmm. Which kind of helps set up the idea of later with when the uh, aliens disable the power and um, attack the attack the characters in a much more stealthy and cunning approach. Yeah, it does show that they are more than just really smart creatures. They're there is a bit of a hive mentality, which is similar to what we saw in the first one, especially when it was hiding in the craft at the end. We do get some of that intelligence. Uh, one of the other things that struck me about those sentry guns is how they were able to bring that in and give you the sense that they were really being overrun on a fairly limited budget. I mean, they set up a couple props, used some shots of aliens getting blasted, and reused some of those shots. But then all the action and all attention comes from people looking at a screen with ammunition counts that just keep getting lower and lower and lower. It's simple, it's basic, but it it but it works really well. It shows how much you can do with not a lot to build tension and suspense in a scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, it's coming back to the films of the 30s, those horror films, when they recognized by accident, again, it was limited budgets, sometimes what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. And that's what they're playing there. Now, this also tends to rub me the wrong way because we see shots of the corridors before and after the assault. And these guns have apparently taken out effectively hundreds of aliens in these assaults. And yet, the hallways that were would have been drenched in this blood are fine. And the bodies are gone. That's, yeah, but they just, I'd, if it were up to me, I wouldn't have shown the after effects. Because this thing, it should have just been a cavity at the end of the hallway. And the alien attack itself should have created the pit that would have allowed them to dig under the incoming guns. So it's an effective scene as you're watching it. But with these particular alien threats and the damage this blood is supposed to do, I just find it doesn't hold up upon repeated viewings. Well, this the reason they probably didn't redo the sets may have been related to getting a bunch of crud from the studio uh, production related to how money was being spent. Because a lot of the sets in this are built through using miniatures and forced perspective shots and that sort of thing to extend the sets and that sort of stuff. And from the, from the making of documentaries on the Blu-ray, I get the impression that this may be a rare case of the special effects people doing their job too well, because what happened was studio execs who didn't know that these shots were um, were using forced perspective models and, mat- and that sort of thing, basically got on James Cannon's case for spending too much time and too much money building elaborate sets instead of on visual effects and miniatures and that sort of thing. Um, which, while it's funny in hindsight, considering that um, there other parts of this that uh, James Cameron was already incredibly stressed out anyway, dealing with um, a British production crew that didn't trust him and wasn't willing to work with him very well because this was a guy who, as far as they concerned, hadn't done a big-budget movie before because Terminator hadn't come out in the UK yet. Um... I could see this causing um, enough frustration that he might have 
uh, even if he considered doing those, sh- um, they're doing those effect shots, might have scrapped the idea just to lower his stress level a little bit. Yeah, I can see it, but it's it's still that, that may be a factor. That may be why they didn't rebuild the sets in a damaged state. But if that's the case, then just don't show the corridors after the attack. Especially since, as I said, they should have basically had the aliens dig their own tunnel after they dug a hole with the blood and just come through underneath. And we've seen how intelligent these creatures are. They could learn that. And even though a single alien in the first movie was working around and figuring out how to avoid them when they were trying to chase him through the air ducts with the flamethrower. He was able to set up ambushes. And we see that later when they take other routes and go, you know, through the floor or through the ceiling to attack them at the end. When they circumvent these attacks. To me, it's just, it's a great scene that's effective until you recognize it doesn't hold up from a story perspective. There should have been far more damage to that corridor, which would have given the aliens another avenue of attack. That's fair. That's the problem. I mean, with this creature, that's one of the things that made the first movie so effective. If you attack it, then you end up destroying the hulls of the spaceship. That's why they couldn't just shoot the thing. It would have gone into the vacuum of space. And that that part, it wasn't completely ignored. It was just misused throughout this entire movie. Now they could unload because they didn't have to worry about opening things up to the vacuum. So they do unload. But the alien blood only seems to damage their vehicles and their flesh. And even the vehicles is limited. As I said, it didn't do anything to the, the tires when they rode over it. It doesn't seem to do any real damage to anything but the people themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and again, even then it's not totally consistent, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And that is, that's largely what frustrates me. I mean, I'll I'll watch it, I'll enjoy it. The reasons I just stick with the DVDs and don't have the Blu-rays is because I haven't tracked down the first two, so Alien and Aliens, in isolation on Blu-ray. I've seen the quadrilogy, but it's really the sequels that I don't feel like paying for again. Even though I got a pretty good deal on the first time. So, I mean, all in all, it is enjoyable. And I completely understand why it made it into the tournament. I'm just... I don't know. Looking at some of the movies, I'm surprised at some of the wins it got. Um, Primarily the win against The Incredibles, which, as we said, was a statistical upset. The Incredibles did have a higher ranking in round one when... It was just being ranked as above average, average, or below average. The Bayesian statistics put it above aliens. But looking at the results, I've seen a lot of feel-good movies showed up high on the list and then fell in the actual tournament themselves. That includes you know, Ghostbusters, Incredibles, Back to the Future. These all performed better in the introductory level with the more serious and darker movies overtaking them when they were put head-to-head. Yeah, although um, so although I would say some of the darkest movies, um, yeah, most explain why some of the more darkest movies, I guess, in the tournament, did rather uh, in the qualifying round, didn't make the list at all. Um, I'm pretty sure Boyna's Dog didn't make it. Um, no, some of those are 
Although Borna's dog did indeed make it. Uh, my bad. Yeah. Um, it did. It, it didn't make it far. A lot of the movies in the tournament, it, some of them seem to just been outvoted because not a large percentage of the voters had seen them. Yeah. There's Borna's dog is one of the movies that had more people voting against it when we got to the elimination brackets than it had voting for it in the initial above average, average, or below average. So I think it's a case where, you know, voters didn't know that one, but they knew they liked what it was up against, so they voted for that one rather than abstaining. Yeah. Not everyone. I mean, there are some some rounds where over 50% of the vote was abstaining with no opinion, but largely if people are familiar with one of the two, then they would either vote for or against it, even if they hadn't seen the other. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised Aliens made it as far as it did. Um, pretty, pretty good showing. Um, one of the things to talk about a bit before um, before we wrap up also is James Horner's musical is the yeah James Horner's musical score. Um, in that it, it's it's a good score. It also kind of shows um, one of James Horner's traits that probably becomes notable if you've listened to a lot of his stuff in various movies is you will as you hear things in the score which you will hear which you'll probably recognize from later James Horner films and cues that you'll recognize from earlier James Horner films the um James Horner drags out kind of the sort of brassy fanfare that he used for the con theme and the klingon theme from Star the con theme from Star Trek 2 and the klingon theme from Star Trek 3 um for the score for the Marines and the action scenes in Aliens. And the, the cue from the very beginning of the movie, um, when Ripley's in cryostasis, he drags out again later in the movie Patriot Games. Yeah, and it's... It is good stuff, but it is highly derivative. Yeah. But, I don't know, it, it's hard to get sued when you're plagiarizing yourself. So there is that advantage. That's true. And it's certainly not the only time. There's a few. It's off topic here, of course, but there are a few directors out there where you can depend on, no matter who they work with, the finished product on the score will sound like specific classical works. Mm-hmm. And every time that director does it. And then the composers are the ones that take the flack for it. And you can say... um, it's not just this guy, it's everyone who works with that guy. Yeah. But all in all, Aliens, it is a good movie, it is an action movie, and this, as I said, one thing we've got to give it credit for is that it does take a sequel into a completely new direction relative to the original. This is breaking new ground by changing genres. It takes the horror franchise and turns it into an action franchise, which opens the door for the dramatic left turn that is Alien 3. I mean, love it or hate it, you've got to admit, Alien 3 had guts to make a completely different type of film than the two that had come before it in the sequels, or in the series. Absolutely. In fact, probably one thing I'd say for the Alien franchise as a whole, and even in its crossovers, with um, when it, the Alien vs. Predator movies, it never does the same movie twice. 
not quite. It, it maintains plot beats and that sort of thing, uh, maybe general plot structure, but the overall type of movie it is is never really quite the same between movies. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This one is action with horror trappings. The next one, as we said earlier, is prison drama. And Alien Resurrection pretty much loses the horror to just be straight-up action and even tries to inject almost an action-comedy feel in cases. Yeah. I think that covers all the bases for Aliens. It does, yeah. So much of what this is, because it is a sequel, is something that we've already discussed in the original. So that pretty much wraps up what we have to say about Aliens. Join us again next week for our podcast about the 1931 classic horror science fiction film, Frankenstein. I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yes. Yeah, that's, for me, looking at horror films, It's it always goes back to Universal in the 30s. As far as I'm concerned, they invented the genre, and this was one of the first.